0: Hey everybody, hey, we got the entire family with us today. We got our family online, local as well as around the world. We got our house church family with us. We got all of our family at all of our campuses with us today. So come on, let's welcome in the entire family today. And we're all together today because today's really special today. Today is a day that's special because it's Today. Because it's today, because it's today. Now, um, I, I'm excited because today we're actually embarking on what I would just call a journey, right? That's really going to carry us through much of this year. And this is uh, which you'll discover as we go. This is the type of journey that Victory really hasn't been on before. So I am very excited about this because I've seen a glimpse of where we're going. And it's good. So we let's just get ready because it's gonna be good. Um, but really, the the heart motivation for why we're undertaking this journey isn't really all good, okay? Because last year, we spent some time in Matthew 24. Jesus is teaching in Matthew 24. And so let's kind of clue in with this because this is kind of the fuel for where we are going. Jesus, in essence, kind of gives this prophecy there in verse six about what's going to begin unfolding as time goes on. And he says, you're gonna hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, And kingdom will rise against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Anybody connecting with this? Yes. Okay. All these are just the beginning of birth pains. In other words, the baby ain't here yet. All right. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. Pause. Jesus says, um, in essence, hey, guys, there's going to be storms. Right, If there's one consistent thing in life, is drama. Right, There's gonna be problems. There's gonna be chaos. There's gonna be storms. Jesus is like, hey, hate to rain on your parade. There's gonna be death. There's gonna be disruption. There's gonna be persecution. There's gonna be money problems. There's gonna be global problems. There's gonna be food problems. There's gonna be a lot of problems. But here's, in essence, what he's saying. The problem isn't so much the storm. The problem is what does the storm produce in people? And in essence, storms reveal what was already going on on the inside of us. So what do these storms produce? What do these storms reveal? Jesus goes on. He says, at that time, many, everybody say many. many. That's not a good many. Many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. And because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But there is some good news. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Can we have a praise break real quick? <laughs> there is a way to stand firm to the end and be saved. Praise God there is a way to stand firm to the end and be saved, but the reality is even as we kind of pick up our eyes and pick up our heads and we look at the world around us, we see what Jesus talked about unfolding all around us. He says this, he says that Christians are gonna turn away from the faith. They're gonna betray and hate each other in the comment sections. And then many false prophets on YouTube are gonna appear and deceive many people. And here, here's, here's the key, guys. What does deception by false prophets always produce? An increase of wickedness. Listen, a false prophet will never lead you to righteousness. A false prophet will always lead you to wickedness. But there is a way to stand firm until the end and be saved, right? But this is what we see happening in the world all around us. Like this prophecy, Jesus' words are like coming to life all around us. And I just have not been able to move past this. Like literally, like I was like, God, let us preach happy bubbles and rainbow unicorns. Like let us do that. Like we want that. There's something inside us that wants that. But God wouldn't let me move past this. Why? Uh, just a few weeks ago, somebody after prayer, they came up to me and they said, hey, um, I, I've tried to leave victory so many times. And I was like, oh, wow, that's, thank you. That's a, uh, in ministry, you have to have thick skin, right? Um, he said, but God just wouldn't let me. Um, she's like, so I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. She said, but it's just so hard because all my friends have left victory. And then she said this. She said, and it's not even like they left victory. They left God. Like they're gone. And we talk to person after person after person in every lobby that we have. And and please, still come up and ask for prayer. Please still come up and talk. But I could just press play because I know what you're about to say. Hey, my husband, my wife, my kids, my, my mom, my dad, my brother, my sister. I don't know what happened to them. It's like they used to love God. They used to serve Jesus, but now they're completely disinterested in the things of God. It's like, it's like they don't want to come to church. They don't want to serve God. They're, they are completely different people. And I look, I look at the, the cultural soup that our next generation is swimming in, and I, re, I understand that's the reality. That's, that's the life we live. But the problem is that language is coming in, and so I see even our next generation parroting the language of the world. And in personal prayer just a few weeks ago, I was praying, in all honesty, I was praying about, like, the economics uh, that's happening in the world, and I felt like the Lord said something pretty clear to me, and I was like, can I share that? And he said, yes, okay. And I believe this is what he said. He said, a greater storm is coming than economics. It's a storm where the undertow, everybody say undertow, will pull many out to sea. They must be built on the rock of my Christ's word so they will not be swept away. And what I saw in my mind's eye when I looked, okay, I saw like, like, you know, where the ocean meets the shore, right? And all the people who can't swim go out to their knees. No, no, yeah, Okay. Because you look out and you're like, what are those idiots doing out there? Like, here, that's where the sharks are, man. I ain't going out. And so there's some safety when you're in your, up, up to your knees, right? And so I saw the masses like dabbling and playing right there, right? And then there was almost this like wickedly fueled undertow that was snatching people and pulling them out to the deep. And it's almost like the camera in my mind panned over. And I saw the masses drowning out in the deep waters, And we see that happening in the world around us. Listen, we see lots of people who call on the name of Christ are dabbling in the knee-deep waters of sin. And they think they're safe. They think, oh, this is good. I can control this. I'm still safe right here. And they don't understand that there's a wicked undertow at work that wants to steal and kill and destroy everything that they have. And so what happens is we get in the the, the knee-deep waters of sexual morality. We get in the knee-deep waters of astrology. Listen, if I see one more person post, well, it's Taurus season and I'm a Leo, so I'm just kind of processing this. (laughs) We're dabbling in the knee-deep waters of deconstruction, right? Oh, did God really say? Dabbling in the knee-deep waters of manifesting. I'm just gonna manifest this reality, I'm going to call in the universal energies and name it and claim it. No, that's witchcraft, bro. <laughs> Dabbling in the social media profits and all, all the voices, all the chatter. And because of that, listen, the undertow at work. This is why we see so many Christians today drowning in anxiety, drowning in depression, drowning in confusion, drowning in the demonic and being deceived away from Jesus. And listen, guys, we're playing in that water. But I I hear this so clearly. I hear the Lord saying this, guys. Now is not the time to be playing games. Like, listen, the enemy ain't playing games right now. We live in the same world, right? Like, just look, just whatever it is. You can name a billion different things. The enemy's not hiding his hand. The enemy's not playing games. Why is the church... Why is the church just looking for more bubbles and rainbow and unicorn and blessing and all these sorts of things? And give this to me, God, and give this to me, God, and I'm going to manifest this and I'm going to have the best this. But there's a way to stand firm to the end and be saved, even in the midst of the storm. And so Jesus says these words, right? Matthew 7, verse 24 through 27. He says, therefore, everyone, everybody say everyone. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. I want us to notice this, right? Jesus says storms are coming to everybody. It it doesn't matter if you're good, if you're bad, if you're Muslim, if you're Buddhist, or if you're Christian, the storms are coming. It doesn't matter if you're a child of God or a child of the devil, storms are coming. You can put your kids in Christian school, you can move up into the suburbs. You can move up into the suburb of the suburbs. <laughs> There's some people who commute from South Carolina to go down to Hamilton Mill. I feel it. The storms are still coming. And jesus they're unavoidable. But Jesus says the way to stand firm in the midst of all that is to hear and put into practice his words. Here, here's one of the deceptions, right? James talks about it, right, in, in his book that we can't just be hearers of the word. We have to also be doers of the word or else we just deceive ourselves. And the problem is a lot of Christians were way overeducated beyond our level of obedience. All right, we know a whole lot of things that we aren't doing, but the promise isn't to those who know the promise. The promise is to those who know the promise and do the promise, who live the life, know the life and do the life. So here's what I believe that the Lord's saying. We have to go deeper. We have to go deeper. Now, here's the deal. Here's, I, here's what I don't mean by deeper. I don't mean like seventh heaven realities and like we're going to have a, a banner waiver come up here in just a minute, right? And gold dust is going to fall from the ceiling. No, I mean deeper in the sense of like drill a borehole in the ground, stuff rebar and pour concrete down in that sucker. That's what I'm talking about. I, I, I saw this, and I, in fact, I, I shared that, that kind of middle picture with some of our leaders a few weeks ago, and one of our leaders who's in construction, he emailed me afterwards. He said, hey, you're describing a caisson. I was like, what? <laughs> I don't know what a caisson is. And he, he described it, and, he, and, and, and here's the idea. We actually have a, an image um, of, of a home, okay? And you see over here on the right, loose soil, and then the bottom, bedrock. And here's the idea of a caisson, okay? A caisson Is where you need to build something big, something heavy, something significant, something meaningful. But if you just put that puppy on top of loose soil, the foundation's gonna crack. Leaks are gonna get in. The whole home will begin eroding and falling apart around you. And God forbid a hurricane ever come through. You're gone. He said, so if you're going to build something really significant, what you have to do is you have to drill down through all that loose soil until you hit bedrock, which is something that will not move. And when you find that bedrock, you stuff rebar down there, you pour concrete down there, and then you put your foundation on top of that. In essence, you're in the midst of a whole lot of mess, but you're not built on the mess. You're built on the rock. So that no matter what comes, you'll still be found standing on the other side of that. And I believe, listen, church, I believe that God wants to make us an unshakable people. That no matter what wind and storms come, we will be found standing. Because, listen, in order to do that, in order to build deep, in order to build strong, we have to get past the sand. What's the sand? The sand is anything that can change. What is sand then? Sand is your emotions. Sand is how you feel. Sand is politics. Come on, all my Republican Christians. Come on, all my Democrat Christians. Sand, sand is a public opinion. Sand is how the world talks about sexuality. It changes every five minutes, right? And here's the here's the thing. If we build on those things, then we're always gonna be falling all around. Oh, did I say it wrong? Oh, did I believe wrong? Oh, did I do it? We're always gonna be up and down until we can drill down through that. In other words, we can be in it, but not built on it. We can go through it to something that will never shift. Cast a shifting shadow. The the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God endures forever. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The things that are permanent and established, the things of God, we have to build on those things. And if we do that, we'll be strong. We'll be unshakable. We'll be immovable. In fact, after after last service, um, Pastor Dennis came up to me. He's like, have you seen this picture before? It's a picture that was taken after a, a hurricane a few years ago. In fact, if you pan out like really wide beyond that, everything's gone. And then there's that house. I believe that this is a picture of what God wants to do in his people. Listen, the storms are coming to everybody. And the storms will reveal what you've already built on. Have you built on the sand or have you built on the solid rock of Jesus Christ? And here, here's the deal. I don't know about you. I'm really happy for that house. But my heart breaks for all the other houses. And I believe that this is what the Lord is saying. If we build on Christ's on on the rock of Jesus Christ, not only will we be strong, not only will we be immovable, but then we can turn around and we can lead our families. Then we can lead our loved ones. Then we can let our light shine so that others would see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. Then we can actually provoke, as scripture would say, we can provoke the Gentiles to jealousy over what we have. But for that, we're gonna have to dig deeper so we can build stronger. So how do we dig deeper so we can be stronger. Again, let's look at Matthew seven, verse 24. We just read it a minute ago, but I'm gonna highlight a different word. Jesus says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Here's the question, what's the therefore? Here's one of our problems if you're really curious. We cherry pick scriptures all the time and we take them out of context. So what's the therefore? The therefore is Jesus saying, listen to what I just said. Right? You know that you understand that's how grammar works? Okay, we're on the same page. Okay. So the therefore means look back. What did Jesus just teach? Jesus just taught the Sermon on the Mount. He just preached for three chapters: Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7. Three chapters of what I would just call bedrock, foundational truth for living. Three chapters that if we heard it and we lived it, our lives would be deeply planted on the rock. So I need you to track with me what's happening, okay? Jesus says the way we're gonna make it through the storm is if we dig and build deep, and then he says the way you do that is you live out the Sermon on the Mount, okay? John Stott says this. He says, the Sermon on the Mount is probably the best known part of the teaching of Jesus, though arguably it's the least understood, and certainly it is the least obeyed. It is the nearest thing to a manifesto that Jesus ever uttered, for it is his own description of what he wanted his followers to be and to do, right? Because it's here in the Sermon on the Mount, if you're not familiar, Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7, it's here in the Sermon on the Mount. What it is, it's Jesus holding his life up, and he invites us, hey, come, be like me. Come live my life. And then he shows us what that looks like to live the Jesus life in Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7. Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7. It is the Jesus, like every word is Jesus. Be salt and light. I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. If you look with lust, you've already committed adultery. A man who divorces his wife causes her to commit adultery. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Love your enemies, our Father who art in heaven. If you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. Store up your treasures in heaven. Don't judge or else you'll be judged. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but only those who do the will of my Father in heaven. That's all the life of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus invites us into that and says, come, be like me. I was actually talking to, to Pastor Mo down in Midtown. What's up, Mo? What's up, Midtown? And he said this. He, he grew up with his dad saying this. I love this. His dad said, a crooked stick doesn't know it's crooked until a straight stick shows up. Mo's dad. <laughs> I thought that was funny, so I lifted it up there. Okay, Mo's a junior, so Andrew. Andrew said that. Andrew moments. But isn't that true? Like a crooked stick doesn't know it's crooked until a straight stick shows up. In other words, we thought we were doing okay, but we were drowning in the waters, right? We thought that a life with God looked one way, but it actually looked another way. So Jesus came, and he said, this is the way to live the life that God requires. This is how you have relationship with God. And it's really important for us, okay? It's here on the Sermon on the Mount that we're not told. Jesus doesn't say, hey, live like this to become a Christian, What he's actually saying is, if you're a Christian, then you'll live like this, right? He doesn't say, check all these boxes, and then one day you'll arrive at the pearly gates, and he's like, all right, you checked all the boxes. No, 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 no. What Jesus says is, because you're a Christian, you will live like this. The Sermon on the Mount is the description of a kingdom person. Jesus says, hey, you follow me long enough, and I'll produce this within you. Oh, I love it. And I love uh, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, one amazing pastor, he said this. It says, I maintain again that if only every Christian in the church today were living the Sermon on the Mount, the great revival for which we are praying and longing would already have started. Amazing and astounding things would happen. The world would be shocked and men and women would be drawn and attracted to our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. And guys, I believe this. I believe this deep down that Jesus came, lived the perfect life, died the perfect death. Three days later, stone rolled away. Jesus crucified, dead, buried, resurrected, ascended, coming back one day, sent his Holy Spirit to empower us to do what? To live the Sermon on the Mount, to live the Jesus lifestyle, and to let our light shine so that not only we would be strong to the end, but also the world around us would come to know Christ through us. So today... We begin a journey. It's going to take us a while. We begin a journey through the Sermon on the Mount. And it begins like this. Matthew 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are. So if you've ever been to Israel, um, then you've been to this place. I've been to this place several times. Uh, what they call the Mount of Beatitudes. So it's, it's um, here's the deal, here's what you have to know because unless you've been there, you have, a, you have a picture in your mind of what it looks like and it's probably wrong. Um, it, here's what we need to know. In the Hebrew and in the Greek, there's really not a good word to differentiate between mountain and hill. So Jesus, let me just tell you, Jesus didn't like climb the rocky mountains, okay? Like had spelunking gear and rock climbing gear and all this sort of stuff to be able to get up to the top. No, it's like a hill, it's like a hill. Right, and it's off the shore of Sea of Galilee, just a little north of Capernaum, which is kind of like his home base, right? And and it kind of slopes up from the Sea of Galilee up into this little hill. And there's a monastery at the top today, uh, on the Mount of Beatitudes. And um, they've actually done some studies here because there's a bowl-shaped not really valley, don't don't think that big, but just kind of like valley-esque. And um, they did acoustical studies, and they found out that if somebody was sitting at the top speaking, if they projected their voice, then it would actually carry down, and and many, many, many hundreds of people would be able to hear there in this place where we believe that the Sermon on the Mount actually took place. And let's put this back up here again, uh, Matthew 5, verse 1, because I want to just kind of walk you through a few of the thoughts here, okay? So it says, he went up on the mountain. Okay, let's pause, all right? Uh, Something that that we need to understand, and I wanna help equip you with this more and more as we go forward, is context matters. Writers matter, authors matter, who they're writing to matters. So Matthew, who's Matthew? Matthew is a Jew, all right? Matthew is a Jew writing to Jews. And so he's using very Jewish language. He's using allusions. He's using intentional language. So if a Jew writes, he went up on the mountain to, to Jews, he's alluding to somebody else. Let's think about this for a second. Let's go back to the Old Testament. Who went up the mountain? Moses, what did Moses do when he went up the mountain? He got the law. Now Jesus comes and he goes up the mountain. And what does he do? He rightly interprets God's law for God's people today. And then Jesus sits down. Now for us, we don't really understand that, right? Because what do we do when we teach? Well, a pastor gets up and he stands behind a pulpit and he preaches. This is how you know a pastor, right? That's how you know a pastor. How do you know a rabbi? He sits down. And then the ones who want to learn from him, his disciples come and sit down around him. This is a rabbinical posture. And then he says, and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, this is the most Jewish way of saying, oh, it's about to get real, right? Because Matthew doesn't say, and he said, no, he says, and he opened his mouth. He's adding emphasis here to like, oh, you, we need to listen. Because whatever Jesus is about to say is about to rock your world. And what does Jesus teach? He teaches the Beatitudes. These are the eight blessed are you when statements of Jesus. So track what's happening with me, okay. Jesus says if we're going to make it through the storm, we have to build on the solid rock of his teaching. What's the solid rock of his teaching? The solid rock of his teaching is the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount begins with the Beatitudes. So Jesus lists off eight ways, and this is super important, okay? He lists off eight ways that we are radically blessed. That is the complete 180 opposite of the way that the world considers blessed. In fact, that word blessed there is really tricky, okay? In, in Hebrew, it's baruch. In Greek, it's makarios, makarios. Makarios are those who, right? This is how we translate it in, in, into the Greek there. Um, and now, again, this is, this is tricky. There's not like a one-to-one translation of this word makarios into English. And so it means blessed. It means happy. It means fortunate. It actually comes from the root word lucky, now, I know we're like, oh, no, we're Christians. We don't believe in luck. Come on. Because we don't, we don't believe it's happenstance. No, no, no. Here's what I'm saying. When you're blessed like this, you feel lucky. Come on. Have you ever been on the other side of the grace of God? And you're like, oh, 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 I feel so lucky. Who am I? Who am I to be blessed like this? That's what I'm talking about. That's what Makarios is. Blessed are those who, right? And this is a really tricky word because, again, it's not emotions. It, it doesn't matter whether you feel blessed or not, but the reality is you are blessed. All right? It's not, Makarios is not a feeling. It's a reality. Now, it may manifest in feelings sometimes, but don't base whether or not you're blessed in the eyes of God by whether you're having a good day or a bad day. Your blessing is not based on your emotions. Your blessing is based on the reality of God's promise. So you may not feel blessed when you're living the Beatitudes, but you are blessed. And in fact, that that word blessed, I love this, I love this, I love this. That word blessed can be summed up with the word congratulations. Congratulations. It's, It's almost like when God pours his grace on us in this way, it's almost like all the angels look around and they're like, Look at this! Look at this dude! Who's he? Congratulations, bro! Congratulations! You are blessed. Why? Because every single one of these eight Beatitudes comes with a promise. Comes with a promise, right? Bless the, the third one. Blessed are the meek. Why? Congratulations! You're gonna inherit the earth. Blessed are the pure in heart. Why? congratulations, you're gonna see God. And this is so important for us to understand, okay? Because again, this is the opposite. This is the other side of the coin. This is the, this is the upside down reality of the kingdom, right? This is the opposite of the way of life that the world is pursuing to get blessed, right? Because we live in this. Sometimes we buy into it because it's so subtle, but we see the whole world looking for happiness, looking for blessing and sin and relationships and money, and all these things, right, knowing that they'll never find it. Why? Because sin always over-promises and under-delivers. Come on. Sin, sin works both sides of the door. It invites you in, and then it condemns you going out. Right? And so you come in thinking, oh, this will actually leave me happy, and then you leave depressed because sin will never satisfy and never fill. Right? And so what the Beatitudes are, listen, is Jesus inviting us into his upside-down kingdom, and here's what he's really saying. Guys, my people are actually the ones who are blessed. My people are actually the ones who are happy. My people are actually the ones who are receiving what their hearts desire. And there's nothing in this world, listen, there's nothing in this world that demonstrates how Christians and non-Christians belong to two different kingdoms more than the Beatitudes. I don't know if you know this, you belong to a different kingdom than everybody else does. That's why you're different. So listen, especially if you're younger, sometimes this is hard to understand. You will be mocked because you belong to a different kingdom. Right, let's just go ahead and jump to the eighth beatitude, right? Just real quick. We'll, we'll visit there in a few weeks. Um, blessed are the persecuted because when you live this out, you will be persecuted. You will be mocked. Why? Because you belong to a different kingdom. The world will hate you. Why? Because you're going to let your light shine, And people who are living in darkness, when they get around the light, they yell at you to turn the light off or to just come into the darkness with them. And it begins here. Today, we begin a journey through the Sermon on the Mount. Today, we begin a journey through the Beatitudes, and the Beatitudes begin here. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Let's finish it out in verse 3. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and he sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying this. Blessed. Are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Track what's happening, okay? Jesus says, if we're gonna make it through the storms of this life, we have to be built on the solid rock. What's the solid rock? It's the Jesus life found in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount begins with the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes begin with blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're working from here down to here. If we're gonna be built on the solid rock, we have to live the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount begins with the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes begin with blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. And here's what we have to understand. There is a definite order to the Beatitudes. You can't just cherry pig. Let's start with number three. No, 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 no. You'll never get to number three unless you start with number one. It all begins with being poor in spirit. In fact, I'll, I'll, let me just make a big statement. If you can get this, if you can get being poor in spirit, the whole of life with God is available to you. That's not an overstatement. All the blessings of God are available to you if you're poor in spirit. Why? Because if you're poor in spirit, you're blessed because the kingdom of heaven is yours. Again, remember, Matthew's Jewish, all right? So Jewish authors, they don't want to write the name God because it's too holy for them. So they write words that mean the same thing. So when he says the kingdom of heaven, he's actually saying the kingdom of God, all right? So blessed are the poor in spirit, why? Because yours is the kingdom of God. What's the kingdom of God? Jesus showed up on the scene. He says the kingdom is at hand, right? So the kingdom did come and the kingdom is coming now and the kingdom will come in its fullness in eternity. And so what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is God's presence, God's rule, God's fellowship, God's intimacy, God's heaven that was, that is, and that will be. We can have the kingdom of heaven in its fullness and eternity, and we can have it in part today. Right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Congratulations. Yours is the kingdom of God. And again, this is so important. Why? Because the world has their own path. Right? Listen, I'm not pointing fingers to anybody. I'll explain that in just a second. But listen, the world has its own path to say, how do I find heaven here on earth? Sex, power, money, being desired, self-expression, living your truth. And what it all is, it's me, 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 me. What's in it for me? More of me. More of me in the lights. More of me in the glory. More of me, 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 me. And Jesus comes and he flips this whole thing on its head and says, the path to heaven is not you, you, you. In fact, that's the road to hell. The path to heaven is not you, you, you. The path to heaven is being poor in spirit. It's saying, God, I am nothing, I have nothing, and I can do nothing without you, 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 you. And to those who have that heart posture, heaven says, Congratulations. You're blessed because the kingdom of God is yours. The kingdom of God is yours. Jesus tells this in Mark 2:17. He says, "Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I Jesus have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners." Guys, the fastest way to remove yourself from the blessing of God is to say, "I don't need Jesus. I'm good." I'm healthy. I'm right with God by myself. But those who are poor in spirit echo Jesus' words to the church in Laodicea, where he says, I am poor, pitiful, blind, and naked, and I need God. They say, I am sick, and I need a doctor. I can't heal myself, I can't fix myself. Come on, I have nothing of redeeming value to bring to God. It's not like, hey, I know Jesus died on the sins, for my sins on the cross, uh, but I also did this good deed the other day. No, I bring nothing except for my sin. That's all I have. That's all I can bring to this equation is my sin. Why, because I was a sinner from the wound? Because I'm dead in my sins, I'm dead in my trespasses, I'm dead in my iniquity. I have no redeeming value in and of myself, I'm dead. I bring nothing to this equation. I'm dead. And how many of you know a dead person cannot resuscitate themselves? Don't work like that. I did find out a few years ago that um, you can give the Heimlich maneuver to yourself. I was running on the treadmill, I was chewing gum, and I went, (gasps) and I'm dying in the right, like 100 people, and they didn't know it. I'm like, and I, I remember, I thank God for random videos. I remember seeing this video that was like, you can throw yourself at the corner of something to try and like get some sort of like makeshift time maneuver. So I'm running on the treadmill and I stop and I'm like. <laughs> so they're at the arm of the treadmill bar, <laughs> I wish I had had this video. I was like, hur, 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 like throwing myself again and like popped up. Here's here's what I'm saying. When you're sick, you can make yourself a little bit better. But when you're dead, a little bit better than dead is still dead. And so listen, we got all these people who are like, oh, I I do intermittent fasting. uh, You know, I only drink soy lattes. I improve my health. Bro, if you're dead, a little bit better than dead is still dead trying to improve myself. I improved my self-discipline this last week because of some meditation practices. You're still dead. A little bit better than dead is still dead. And when you're dead, somebody outside of you has to bring you back to life. You can't bring yourself back to life. And at the heart of being poor in spirit is this confession. I cannot save myself. I am a sinner in need of a savior. That's at the heart of being poor in spirit, guys. I cannot save myself. I can't do enough good deeds. I can't tip the scales, right? I can't somehow do it just right and God will finally check the box over my life. No, I am a sinner in need of a savior. I can't save myself. And let me just tell you guys, there is nothing that's more repulsive to the culture of this world than that statement. I cannot save myself, I'm a sinner in need of a savior. Why, because it's humility. Because it means that I'm not my own savior. It means that somebody outside of me has to save me. No human could ever save me. I need a savior. And this is why, listen, there is nothing more countercultural to the spirit of this world than being poor in spirit. Jesus goes on, he tells this story in Luke 18, verse 11. He tells a parable. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed. Listen, uh, just, just go with me. I think he was praying like, God, I thank you. I'm not like all those other people. Robbers, evils, doers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the task collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you that this man rather than the other went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And to those who have a heart like that, heaven says, Congratulations. You're blessed because the kingdom of God is yours. Guys, for clarity, being poor in spirit is not being trapped in condemnation, and it's not depression. The enemy loves to come in and twist all these things, what God meant for for good, right? I mean, he'll try and twist it for evil, right? And so being poor in spirit is not being like, oh, I could never be saved. What it is is saying, God, I could never be saved, but God, right, right? There's a difference between condemnation, between condemnation and conviction, All right, Conviction draws me to Christ. Condemnation pushes me away. Uh, uh, being poor in spirit is not self-deprecating talk. It's like, oh, I'm worthless. I'm this. I'm that. I'm that. I'm that. Why? Because it's still I, 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 I. Being poor in spirit is nothing that you are naturally. None of the beatitudes are what you are naturally. Only God can produce this on the inside of you. But blessed are you. You come to God with empty hands and say, I have nothing to offer God. Blessed are you when you say, I feel out of gas, like I just can't go on. Blessed are you when you're like Peter who says, God, why are you even here? God, oh, Father, I feel like you should get away from me because I'm just a sinful man. Blessed are you when you say, God, I want to obey, but I feel so weak. Blessed are you when you say that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is so weak. And God, I fall and I fail over and over. God, it breaks my heart. God, blessed are you when you say, God, I can't do it on my own. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one more time. He says the Sermon on the Mount, in other words, comes to us. And here's what it says. There is the mountain that you have to scale, the heights you have to climb, and the first thing you must realize as you look at that mountain which you are told you must ascend is that you cannot do it, that you are utterly incapable in and of yourself, and that any attempt to do it in your own strength is proof positive that you have not understood it. In other words, Blessed are you when you say, I am completely incapable of obeying God without God. Guys, I I have good news for you. Jesus lays out his life in Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7. That if we live that life, I believe the great revival, like he says, that we've always been longing for will come that people will be attracted to Christ because they'll see these light that's shining that makes no sense in this world. We have peace that the world doesn't even understand that if we live this, it'll change everything. And here's the good news. You can't do it. (laughs) What? What? You cannot do it. Because if you could do it, you could brag about it. But since you can't do it, It will be his strength by his spirit that produces that on the inside of you. And this is why being poor in spirit is the first beatitude. You can't jump to number three and be blessed are the meek. Well, I'll just be meek today. No, you won't. No, you won't. That's not in you. Meekness is not in us. Pure in heart is not in us. It's not in you to hunger and thirst for righteousness unless you're first or poor in spirit. Being poor in spirit calls us to lay our failures before the Lord, calls us to to confess our weakness before the Lord and then invite him to come in and redeem and rescue us. Being poor in spirit is saying, God, I empty myself before the Lord and I ask you to then come and fill me. Less of me, more of you. Less of me, more in you. And to those who live like that, congratulations. You're blessed. The kingdom of heaven is yours. And that's why this beatitude is first. You can go no further with God, and you can go no further with Jesus than starting with being poor in spirit. You cannot be filled unless you're first emptied. And in fact, I'd say it like this, guys. If you've never been broken and poor in spirit before God, you're not a Christian. Well, I said a prayer one time. Were you broken? Did you repent? Listen, it all starts here. Confessing who I am before the Lord, that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, and I cannot save myself. And Jesus, come send your spirit to come empower me to live the life you've called me to live. Guys, your neighbors and your friends, this world needs less Christians who are walking around like this, chest puffed out like I did it. Thank you, God, that I'm not like that sinner. It is is the easiest thing in this world to look down on somebody who struggles with something that you don't struggle with. Thank you, God, that I'm not like that man struggling with homosexuality over there. Thank you, God, that I'm not like that prideful guy over there. The world needs less Christians who walk around like this, and they need more Christians who confess that we're all sinners in need of a Savior, and we cannot save ourselves. And we, listen, we cannot, we have to stop. We have to stop. I know we all get into ourselves in this. We cannot point a finger at the world and say, you're wicked. What do you mean? We were wicked. But even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, to save us, to redeem us, to rescue us so we could be born again. There's not time for finger pointing. All there is, is time to say, Thank you, Jesus, to invite others into the kingdom and then look around at the others who said yes to Christ and say, congratulations, you're blessed for the kingdom of God is yours. Guys, let's do this across all the campuses, okay? Across all the campuses, everybody. Look at the person next to you and say, congratulations, you're blessed, the kingdom of God is yours. Now look at your second choice that you didn't want to look at the first time. (laughs) And say, congratulations. You're blessed. For the kingdom of heaven is yours. Now awkwardly look at the person behind you. And say, congratulations. You're blessed. For the kingdom of God is yours. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. You guys, let's bow our heads. Let's pray. I believe a moment like this takes some honesty. It takes some vulnerability, okay? Here's what I know, guys. Here's what I know. Here's what I know. The world loves to lie on their resume, right? We all do that. We all try and make ourselves look better than we actually are. We cannot lie on our resume before God. He knows it all. He sees it all. So we can either do the oldest trick in the book, which is Genesis 3, Adam and Eve running and hiding, but God knows where they are. He already saw all of it. Or we can just say, God, here I am. Faults, failures, the real me, and transparent, vulnerable honesty. I invite you to do so today. And so, Father, today we stop defending our sin. Stop rationalizing it, saying, well, it's just this or it's just that. God, we confess we've been playing, many of us in the knee-deep waters, not understanding that there's an undertow at work trying to steal and kill and destroy us. So God, we lay this before you. Today, we allow the reality of our sinfulness to smash our pride. God, we bring no pride into your presence because you know the real us. And so today we confess that we are sinners in need of a savior. Thank God you've sent one and his name is Jesus. Here's what I wanna do, okay? I mean, we, we, we could pray a different prayer and I, I will have you repeat after me in just a second. But, um, King David, when he has an affair with Bathsheba, if you're familiar with the story, he um, he ends up having her husband killed. And the prophet Nathan comes and gives him the word of the Lord and it breaks him. And he finds himself praying this prayer, which is captured in Psalm 51. And I wanna invite all of us where we wherever we would find ourselves today to, to say this together. Let this be our prayer today. We're gonna put it up here on the screen, Psalm 51. Let's pray this together. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. God, that's about as real as we can get. So Father, we confess that we have searched for blessing and happiness in this world, but it's only found in you. Makarios, Baruch, blessed. Blessed are those who have found favor in your sight, who've said yes to Christ, who've been washed clean. So today, God, help us to acknowledge the poverty of our spirit, that we are nothing, have nothing, and can do nothing without you. And here's what I want to do, okay? Maybe you've been feeling today like I am crushed, (laughs) like my sin is right there. Good news is this, is that the doors are open wide. Doors are open really wide to come into life with Christ. You don't have to sit out on the outside anymore. Your sin doesn't remove you when you say yes to Christ. You're actually brought inside the family. You don't have to live in condemnation. You can come into forgiveness. Life everlasting is through faith in Christ. And so if that's you today, I wanna invite you to now pray this prayer with me and family of God around you. We're gonna pray this. Some of you, this is your line in the sand. Some of you say, I'm crushed by my sin. On the other side of this, I'm stepping into the family of God. So let's pray like this. Repeat after me. In our poverty of spirit, we confess we are sinners in need of a savior. God have mercy. I put my faith in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to forgive our sins, and he rose again to give us new life. I repent of my old way of life. I turn from those sins to be born again. And because of Jesus, we are forgiven, and we're free because of Jesus. God is our Father. So now, Holy Spirit, empower us to obey God and to live for him the rest of our lives. Embolden us to be faithful witnesses of this good news that the kingdom of heaven is ours. We are blessed in Jesus' name. Amen, 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 amen.